You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Welcome back, friends. This is episode 196 of the Freedom Pack podcast. Today on the show, I am joined by Marissa Peer. Marissa is the founder and creator of Rapid Transformational Therapy. Marissa has spent over three decades treating a client list that includes international superstars, CEOs, royalty, and Olympic athletes. Marissa is a best-selling author of five books. Marissa has been listed in Tatler's Guide to Britain's 250 Best Doctors, and she's been heralded as the UK's best therapist. Marissa is a pioneer in motivational hypnotherapist, psychotherapist, and an award-winning sports psychologist. Known as an expert therapist on many high-profile US and UK television networks, Marissa is also an acknowledged and inspirational speaker who has been on stages such as TEDx and the Royal Society of Medicine. In today's episode, Marissa and I discuss the I Am Enough movement, modern relationships and overcoming the paradox of choice, unlocking the hidden power of the mind, hypnosis, how Marissa overcame cancer twice, the techniques that Marissa uses to help women struggling with fertility issues to give birth, and much, much more. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with the remarkable Marissa Pia. Well, thank you for having me. I'm um, thrilled to be here and I'm excited. We're in a time where relationships, they seem more transient than ever. And when I was reading a blog post which you put up, the part of it which really caught my eye was, literally it was the first line and it said, don't want someone who doesn't want you. And this sort of made me reflect. And I think that there is almost a glamour around this idea of unrequited love, right? It's like there's a movie like Twilight which paints the picture that it's almost glamorous to chase after someone that doesn't want you. You know, that's not romance to me. That seems like emotional masochism. So I wonder what your thoughts are on chasing after someone that doesn't want you. Well, you know, it's something that most people don't understand. And I found it very early in my career as a therapy is that our minds are hardwired and coded to return to what's familiar. You know, when you have a two-year-old, you'll notice that anyone to eat the stuff they already know, and their mind is wired to, I just want Rice Krispies and strawberry yogurt because I know that and it makes me safe. And as we get older, we have this same fear if we keep going back to what's familiar and avoid what's unfamiliar, we're safe. So in tribal times, you didn't leave your walled village or leave the fort and go off on a wonder because that could kill you. The problem is that our minds need to recreate what is familiar means that we pick people who remind us of something. People say, you know, I met this guy in a bar and, oh, my God, we just clicked and we got on so well. And it's like that's because he reminds you of your dad. He's cold. He's distant, he's critical, he's a withholder, he makes you work to get his love. And men will say to you, you know, I seem to like very bitchy cold women or women who put me down or women who always make me work harder to get their attention. And they've almost always had bitchy, cold, emotionally absent mothers. So our mind wants us to recreate what we know and then put a happy ending on it. Find someone who's not available, make them available. Then you can go, you know, I, I got this bad boy, this wild person to love me. I must be worth it. And um, it's the same reason that people who've never had money when the lottery tend to go bankrupt in three years, because you will always return to what's familiar. And it's why children who are never held have attachment disorder, because if love is unfamiliar or indeed wealth, you'll reject it. So that's a fact. Our minds like what's familiar, but here's a better fact. You've got to make 
being loved familiar. And first you make that decision and then you act on it. And I've seen time and time again people in horrible relationships find love, but they'll go, oh, no, this person was too good for me. They were out of my league. And what they're actually saying is, I didn't recognize this unfamiliar behavior and I ran away from it. And I go turn around and run back to it because love should not be earned or worked for or bought or chased. It should just be there. Yeah, I find that so interesting. And in fact, one of the comments which we actually had today, it was from a woman that uh, wrote to us on Instagram and said that she'd been in cycle after cycle of chasing after you know i mean as you said the quote-unquote bad guy and then when she meets someone that perhaps does treat her nice that you know she says there's no attraction there but you know what do you think in a situation like that well i used to be like that you know my father was a headmaster he was a lovely man but he was a very classical headmaster and his interest was other people's kids he would do anything for other people's children And I noticed that I was attracted to men that would never put me first. They would often put me last. And then one day I just thought, you know what? No, I'm going to stop this. And I just made a decision. It didn't happen overnight. And I'm so glad I made that decision because I married someone completely, the polar opposite of all the guys I was attracted to. And I am blissfully, blissfully happy because now, of course, being loved like that is so familiar I can hardly imagine all those idiots I dated that were wild and crazy and the bad boys. And now I, I, I can't even imagine why I even was attracted to them. That's the good news. When you make something familiar, it becomes normal. You know, it's a bit like um, I if, when I grew up, I didn't have, we didn't have heating in our house. That wasn't you had a boiler. But now I couldn't even imagine not having heating. You know, you can't imagine your life without a mobile phone. And yet for years we didn't have those things. You can't imagine your life without Netflix or cable TV. But many of us who are 50 can remember. I remember having three channels. I remember no mobile phone. So you get used to anything. You must make it familiar. The first thing is I will make love familiar what do I really want if I want a bad boy a crazy person who's not there aren't I just delaying the inevitable and it's one thing to date them it's quite another to marry them and have children with them because where is that going someone wild and crazy that won't commit that's always cheating or that is um an alcoholic and you think it's incredibly glamorous but where does that go So think about what you really, really, really want in a person because the wild sex, no matter how wild it is, that cannot last. And it cannot last because nature goes, right, you've been in bed for two years having wild sex. You must have made a baby by now. So I'm going to turn that sex drive right down because you've got to get out of that bed and look after that baby. And so a lot of people who base their relationship on wild passion and great sex find that when children come along, it ends. Then we have the seven-year itch and the three-year itch, and it's very difficult. And, and for men, too, if you start to become mummy, always cleaning and making them lovely sandwiches, giving them vitamins and ironing their shirts, which is a lovely thing to do, it's very hard then to be sexually attractive to someone who is mummy. And if a guy becomes daddy, no, you can't wear that. No, I'm not giving you money for that. No, then you don't want to have sex with him either. So you've got to think about what you want in a person. And when you find them, don't stop the sexual attraction. Keep that going too. For a relationship to work, you have to have best friend chemistry and sexual chemistry. And you have to respect and admire that person. And none of those things can be cut out of a great relationship. You have to have all three. Do you still hold a sense of optimism, perhaps even a sense of romance around relationships? I think online dating is good and bad. It's good because you don't have to like go to a bar and look for someone. But it's bad because there's so much choice. It's like being let loose in a sweet shop. Mm. And, and men with a great think, well, you're nice, but look, there's someone just as nice as you. And they start to date all kinds of people. But... Having said that, I've worked with a lot of rock stars again. I'm so sick of all these different women, and I just want one person. I've worked with a lot of football players, and I find they do two things. Either get married very, very young, like David Beckham and Wayne Rooney, and stick to one person, or 
they have so many different girlfriends and after a while it's a bit tragic. I mean, many years ago, I went to the Playboy Mansion in Hollywood, and I thought it was one of the most depressing places I'd ever been to. There were all these old men with hair in ponytails, like late 60s, 70s. Bunny girls, girlfriends, you could tell the bunny girls didn't care about them at all. It was just, it was a transaction. I'll trade my beauty for what you've got to offer me. And they all had these little Yorkshire terriers they called Baby and Sugar and Honey, and, and they were a great example of men who had never committed. And um, a couple of years ago, one of my great friends, Felix Dennis, died. He was um, a millionaire. Um, he, he wrote some great, he founded Maxim. And he said, what an idiot I've been. I never had a son. And I thought that was so sad that as his life ended, he realized that he'd pursued loads of women. He had hundreds of them. But he never had a son. He didn't have children. And... My saddest clients I tend to see actually are men who get to their very late 50s and say, what an idiot. I mean, even you can look at someone like Rod Stewart, who said, I've never been happy. I've finally settled down and I want what I have. But a lot of us get so caught up in this too much choice, too much variety. And and women too. A lot. I say I meet women who miss their fertile years by always looking for the bigger, better thing, the bigger, better deal, not realizing that growing a relationship with someone who is not perfect is what you're supposed to do with flawed people. And the best you can ever have is a flawed relationship with another flawed person. But if you keep looking for someone who's perfect, A, you'll never find them. It doesn't exist. And people who try to be perfect are always unhappy, and they're almost always alone, too. And yet people who say, yeah, you know, my husband annoys me, but he's my husband. My husband leaves his pants on the floor, but he's my guy, and I'm sure I annoy him, too. But we make it work. It's not about finding a perfect person. It's about finding someone that you share values with and, and like the same things and dream the same dream that, that has your back. And then you can grow a great relationship together. But if you're looking for Mr. Perfect or Miss Perfect, you'll be so disappointed because they don't exist. If I'm in a relationship with someone and I'm constantly picking at flaws in their, uh, you know, just how they approach life, their mannerisms, their actions, could there actually be a case that of maybe it's not them that I'm not accepting, it's actually myself? Yeah, you know, I remember years ago opening the door to this supermodel. Oh, my God, she was breathtaking. And her boyfriend looked it was so unattractive. I thought, wow, I've never seen such an unattractive person, little and fat and hairy. But I realized straight away, of course, she knows she's beautiful. She doesn't need a beautiful man to sound beautiful. So the problem is when we don't feel enough, when we feel lacking, go, right, I don't feel good enough. If I have someone perfect and I'm on their arm, then I must be good enough. If I have someone who's gorgeous or rich or successful, then I'm good enough by default, rather like mothers who try to make their kids perfect so they can be perfect by default. And that's a huge mistake. You're looking for someone else to make you feel good enough. But when you give someone the power, can you make me feel I matter? Can you make me feel significant? Can you make me feel I'm worth it? They go, yeah, sure. But you know what? I can also remove that any time I like. And next year, I'm going off with a bigger, better deal. So I can give you that and I can certainly take it away. But when you give it to yourself, when you every day go, I matter, I'm significant, I'm lovable, I'm enough, when you really let that in, now you'll find someone who loves you. And many years ago, well, two things happened to me. When I was in my 20s, my boss said to me, your boyfriend is so gorgeous. I don't know how you keep him, which is kind of rude. But but then years later, my daughter said, Mommy, your boyfriend is so ugly. Why are you even with him? And I said, well, you know what? That shows what an amazing person he must be because I've never seen that. I see all his wonderful qualities. But I thought that was so funny, the two different opposites. But when you feel good about you, then you can pick someone who's real, and, and it doesn't matter if they have flaws. After all, Rupert Friend, the, the gorgeous guy from Homeland that dated Kiera Knightley, his wife, Amy Mullins, has no legs from the knees down. He adores her, and I love that. And 
You'll find you know, Pierce Brosnan's wife, Keely, is very, very overweight. Prince Charles left Diana for Camilla, who was older mm. and certainly mm. less attractive, but they love each other. And that's a beautiful thing when you can say, my partner's not perfect, but they're my partner. They're, I love them. So don't look for perfection because looking for perfection, you will without question always be disappointed. Look for someone who has real values because that's what makes it work. You know, my husband is not perfect and he probably would say, I'm not perfect, but we, we dream the same dream. We like the same things. He's funny and immensely kind. And, and I see so many people looking for gorgeous. I just want a hunk. I just want a supermodel. But I see so many supermodels who are always left because their partners just cut, they're like going out with a racehorse. They need so much attention. One of my clients said that. It's like dating a racehorse. I, I'm just so bored with the praise I have to roll out every day and the attention. I just left her for someone completely normal and I've never been happier. So you've got to remember that, that beautiful women and men get left all the time. We think, wow, why would someone like Heath Ledger kill himself? Why would Whitney Houston, with all that beauty and talent, self-destruct her life? But they never feel enough. When I was looking at your career, I can only imagine that, I can't imagine there's probably any scenario in which you haven't seen. And then I was thinking to myself, you know, there's pretty much a, a counsellor or a therapist on every street corner. You know, I mean, I could go onto the British counselling website and I could find probably five or six, you know, counsellors or therapists within a mile of where I where I live pretty easily. But when I was reading the reviews of your book, I Am Enough, you know, I mean, time after time I was reading the same things. This is life-changing. Uh, this has changed my. This has changed my life. This has changed my perspective. Uh, you know things like I read. You know just tale after tale of these incredible stories. So it makes me think that there must be something which you do different, right? So when I look further into it, your model of hypnotherapy or this rapid transformational therapy, I want to know why is this so effective in comparison. To these other models of therapy? Well, that's a great question. I love that. You see, when I trained in therapy, my very eminent teacher said, you know, the mind is very complicated and it takes a lifetime to understand it. Then you need another lifetime to put your understanding into practice, which I thought, well, that's a bit odd because you don't get another lifetime. And I, I never believed that could be the case. That the nature would say, here's a great brain. On your deathbed, you might have cracked it, but too late for you to work it out. And I've always challenged um, a lot of old therapies because we have to remember some of these were invented in the late 1800s um, and they're not appropriate. My greatest teachers were my own clients. They taught me exactly what works and doesn't. And I was very lucky to work with movie stars and actors and royalty. And I realized that they all had exactly the same problem. They never felt enough. Like we go, well, I'm not enough because I'm not perfect to look at and I don't have money and I uh, but I'm working with millionaires living on yachts with everything who feel so miserable because they don't feel they're enough and so I realized that's it all of our problems in the western world stem from this not enoughness instead of treating okay I'm going to treat you for alcoholism or compulsive shopping or compulsive shoplifting or self-sabotage or destructive behavior, I would actually go straight into let's treat the not enoughness because it's like an onion. You're peeling away the layers to get to the core and the core is always I'm not enough. And in treating that, I just found I could revolutionize my clients really quickly, one to three sessions. I could turn them around because many people go to AA and they stop drinking because the problem is treated. I've, I've gone to counseling and I no longer sabotage myself. But the feeling that's causing the behavior is still there. I'm not enough. I've stopped drinking now. I'm eating loads of cakes. I've stopped gambling, but now I'm, I'm using drugs. I've stopped um, being in this destructive relationship, but I've just found another one. It's almost the same. So you've got to treat what I call what lies beneath. 
what are the causes of your issue? It's a bit like going to Weight Watchers and stopping eating badly. The minute those people lose weight, they celebrate with pizza. People go on those liquid diets and they say, the minute it's over, I'm going to have pizza and ice cream. And I worked on many, many weight loss shows and they would celebrate their weight loss by eating a burger and fries because they were changing the behavior, but not the thoughts. And I, my success is because I change people's thinking, not the behavior, because the thinking causes the behavior. Your thoughts control your feelings. Your feelings control your actions, and your actions control your events. So therapy is about changing the behavior. And you need to change the feeling and the thoughts that run the behavior, and then not only have you cracked it, it doesn't come back. How does hypnosis actually work because i imagine you know someone like you you've you've got this angelic voice right so i mean i can imagine it'd be easy for for you to hypnotize anyone well i have trained over four thousand rtt therapists all over the world in south africa in texas in greece in australia in new zealand and they all have different accents mm-hmm. and I mean, the voice is important, but it's not the most important. The most important part of hypnosis isn't even getting someone in hypnosis because that's a skill that almost anybody can learn. It's like saying driving a car is a skill, but I can learn that skill. The skill is a unique ability to ask questions and get the right answers, followed by an ability to extract the old stuff. So when I train my people, I say, like, okay, first of all, you become a detective and you you are a good detective. You lay out information with your client and work out this is why you are anorexic or bulimic or, or have depression. So first of all, you go back and find out why. Many of them go, you know, that's amazing. I had no idea that that was why I did that. And that's great, but many therapists stop at that. Now you know why, and that's not nearly enough. Because I know why I drink, but I still drink. So the first bit is the why, which is very, very important. And the second bit is now you switch from being the detective to the dentist, and you extract all those toxic beliefs. You shatter them, you interrupt them, you interrupt them, and you get rid of them. And then you become a coder, and now you code in the most amazing words and language. You pretty much give your client the words they want to hear. And it makes total sense, but you have to do all of those three things. Some therapists work on changing the behavior, but they never look at why. Others look at why, but they don't do the change. And others give you a generic recording, you know, for calmness or confidence, but it's the recording tailored to the client that really sets their mind on fire. And so I think that's why it's successful. I just think that my clients taught me what they need. And, and you have to understand the mind, which is not complicated. That, that tutor of mine was wrong. There's only three things you need to know about your mind, whether you've got issues with love or money. One is it does what it thinks you want. When you go, you know, that last relationship nearly killed me. I'd die if another person leaves me. I'd rather be my own than go through that pain. You have told your mind, I don't want another relationship. In fact, it would kill me. And now your mind is going to make sure you don't go to anything that would hurt you. So the mind does what it thinks you want. And it's only basing on what you tell it. Secondly, you respond to the pictures and words you say, this job is killing me, uh, money, I, I, I can't find money, I, I don't know what I'd do if someone left me, I was left before, and oh my God, it was the end of the world. So you've got to stop filling up your head with those words. And thirdly, I said before, you are hardwired to return to what's familiar You have to make new things familiar. You know, we lie to ourselves all the time. I'm as fat as a house. I'm exhausted. I feel like I haven't slept for a week. This job is killing me. This commute is killing me. If I look at a cake, I gain 10 pounds. I would say, listen, why not tell yourself a better lie? How about saying I'm amazing, I'm phenomenal, I got a super fast metabolic rate, I attract love and maintain it because I'm lovable. 
and I've got a gift that I can monetize and I'm attracting a great salary because which is the lie? They're all lies, if you like. So tell yourself a better one and it will probably sink in and become true. For someone like me, I come from a science background, right? So I fully, completely get the, you know, the neurons are fired together, they wire together. So the more and more that we tell ourselves something, as you said, the brain loves familiarity. But what I'd love to know is, when we're just starting off and we're telling ourselves these thoughts, like as you mentioned, perhaps I'm attracting a new sal, you know, a higher salary, or you know, I am love and I'm worthy of a loving relationship. How can we, how can we make it so that we actually believe it in the early, in the early parts? Or is there a case that maybe we just won't believe it until we've repeatedly done it over and over again? Well, you know, that's a very good question too, because your mind learns by repetition. And you have to, so imagine you're looking there going, I'm lovable, I'm lovable. And you go, I'm not really lovable. I've got cellulite. I'm not really lovable because why would I be on my own for the last five years? Mm -hmm. I'm saying them going, I'm successful, I'm successful. Mine's going, no, because you buy your clothes in Primark and you've got a really beaten up old car. You have to understand one thing. You are the one who's objecting. So then you go, you know what? It's true. I do have a beaten up car, but I am still wildly lovable and successful. It's true. I have some cellular. That has nothing to do with how lovable I am. So whenever you have an objection, add it in. I'm not lovable. My dad left when I was two. Yeah, he did, but that's got nothing to do with how lovable I am. And if you keep going, eventually your mind goes, you know what? You say this every day. It must be true. And then it sinks in. You know, you wouldn't go to the gym and go, I've done 400 sit-ups, why haven't I got a flat stomach? You understand I've got to go back and go back and wonder, I go, well, there it is, that flat stomach. I got that by repetition. When you're changing your language, you don't have to go to the gym, it doesn't hurt. You just have to keep saying the things that you wish to be true. And of course, if you're saying I'm a phenomenal brain surgeon, you're going to reject that because it can't be true. But when you're saying I am lovable and I'm enough, the strength is actually the simplicity of what you're saying and the fact that it is true. No baby says, well, I'm not lovable. I haven't got any hair. I haven't got any teeth. I haven't got any clothes on. I've got these really fat thighs and seem to have a fat stomach as well. Babies know they are lovable. Um, so we, so knowing that you're enough, you're not even doing anything new. You're just reactivating and, in fact, regenerating the innate truth that you were born with. And you kind of let it slip away, but you can reclaim it really, really easily. Where would you say that the limits would be on this self-talk? So we're, we're firing, we're wiring these new connections. We're, you know, we're going after what we do want. Um, so, you know, you sort of mentioned it there, I'm not going to wake up and be a brain surgeon. Like, like, where is the limit? How do we set that limit for, like, how much we can actually change? The limit is in your mind. You know, the glass ceiling exists in, in your mind. When you begin to believe there's a limit, you create a limit. There's a limit to how much I can earn. There's a limit. I mean, look at Ed Sheeran, kid with ginger hair and glasses and he said himself I was an unfortunate looking kid <laughs> but there was no limit and in fact it was Eminem that took him to one side and said look you know I felt like that how could I be a white guy with blue eyes and be a rapper and yet Eminem took the world by storm Ed Sheeran is taking the world by storm James Corden you know he's an overweight guy that's made it hugely in America by nature Danny DeVito shouldn't be a movie star the limit exists in your head. When Meryl Streep went up for the part in King Kong that was given to Jessica Lange, the director said, Meryl, you're not pretty. You'll never make it as a leading lady. Go home and find a better job. And she said, that's one opinion in a sea of opinions. I'm going to go and find another opinion. So there is no limit except in your imagination. If you say, I can't find love because I'm short, I can't find love because I'm not perfect. I'm not a 10. I can't find wealth because I didn't go to university. You've created a limit. You know, I worked with a leading football player who said, I'm too small. And I'm like, well, Michael Owen and indeed Maradona, at his peak, of course, were not tall. But they didn't have that belief. So 
you have to look at your own beliefs and look at the limits. I mean, look at Tony Robbins, look at Oprah Winfrey. There are people out there who came from nothing and have got phenomenal success, phenomenal wealth, because they smashed that limit. When someone said to Naomi Campbell, Naomi, the door is shut to black girls when the cover of the book should shut or kick it open. And I love that because it's like, no, I'm not going to have that limit. And so, I, you know, when, um, was it Will Young, when he was on X Factor and Simon said that song wasn't very good, he went, no, it was brilliant. And Simon actually apologized when he was singing Light My Fire because he wouldn't accept it. So it's not other people telling you, no, it's you. Women can't go that far. I can't do that. It's greedy to ask for more money. Who am I? And I still have that. You know, last year, this really famous Hollywood actor sent his car to pick me up, and he kept saying, I'm so pleased you're coming to see me. And I'm like, you're pleased? I'm amazed that you even want me to come and see you. And when I got to his incredible mansion, my first thought was, who am I? Who am I to, to sort this guy out? But then... It's a bit like that Nelson Mandela speech. Who are you not to? Take a leap of faith. Fortune favors the brave. Don't believe those limiting beliefs. You know, we're always taught, we're always finding beliefs that suddenly aren't true anymore. So your, your, belief, your beliefs should be good and your dreams should be big. Of course, they should be reasonable. If you said, you know, I'm 75, I want to be a major Hollywood heartthrob, that's not going to happen. I'm 55. Can I get pregnant naturally? Unfortunately, no, probably not. But you can still dream your dream. I see many people who say, no, I always wanted to be a doctor and I never went to medical school and I'm now so depressed. Because one of the major things that causes depression is not following your heart's desire. And all of those clients are now, the one in particular, she's now working in a hospice as a healer. I've got another one doing aromatherapy in a hospital. They love it. It's just like being a doctor. They wanted to help people and make a difference. I had somebody who wanted to be a vet and got kicked out of vet school twice and told don't apply again. And she's now an animal trainer. She's got her own TV show, loves it. More than she'd ever love being a vet, actually. It's about... We make it black or white. Okay, uh, um, I can't find love. Yes, you can. I've missed out on having a child. But you could still sponsor a child, foster a child, mentor a child. There's always something you could do to follow your heart's desire. I think this is a great point to, to get into the hashtag I am enough movement. So I listened to the book on Audible. I thought it was fantastic. I just reading the reviews of it it's clear that this is, you know, it's just so impactful and it cuts so deep. And and I, I wonder, you know, I mean, I've heard you call this the, you know, the not feeling enough as the biggest disease that's affecting humanity. And it makes me think, right, it's like a baby comes out the womb and it's, you know, it doesn't say, you know, oh, I'm not enough. It gets sort of gets conditioned into it over time. So I, I wonder, like, why does this happen? Like, how does this even get bred into us? Well, it's, it's you know, it's, it's quite a modern illness. I think 500 years ago, we were far too busy even trying to survive to worry about, you know, what was our body shape like or how much money we had. And also, we lived in tribes. And in a tribe, we all looked the same. We were all dark or fair with pretty much the same Face, So we knew who we were, and now we live in multicultural societies where we feel different. And it, what's interesting is that when we're born on the planet, we have a driving need to find connection and avoid rejection because that's how we live. If I find connection and avoid rejection, I will survive. And we used to find connection and avoid rejection because we all were the same. And now we go to school and we go, I'm the only kid with red hair. I'm the only kid with freckles. I'm the only kid that's rich. I'm the only kid that's poor. I'm the first kid to develop. I'm the last one. And we feel different. And when you feel different, it becomes the bane of your life because we need connection. It's Our DNA insists that we find connection because if you find connection, you probably find surviving. And if you ever watch Game of Thrones – you would see how surviving has always been a numbers game. Now you can live in an apartment till you're 102 with 10 cats and a uh, Amazon and never see a soul, but we still have this fear 
that I'll die if you reject me, that rejection will kill me. And so the premise of my book was to make people understand that nobody can reject you unless you give them your consent and you get a choice not to give them your consent. And so going back to children and they get rejected because they think they're different, it's not about saying you're not different or unique. It's about finding the cause, which is I'm not enough and changing to I am enough. I'm enough because I'm enough. I was born enough, I'll die enough, I'm enough just the way I am. It's like that Billy, um, that song, Don't Go Changing to Try to Please Me. I love you just the way you are. And whenever we go, oh, I want that. Someone to love me just the way I am. I don't have to change. But that's really saying you're enough. And if we could all start our day just saying I'm enough, if we had our kids say I'm enough, it would be so transformational. I know that because I have so many schools all over the world using the I'm Enough program and using my anti-bullying program. And they say, wow, it's made such a difference because it's the bullies that need help. The bullies feel so inadequate that they get up and bully other kids. It's like, I feel bad. I make you feel bad. And now I feel less inadequate. And so if we get start with the bullies and make them believe that they're enough and that everyone's enough and that all the kids are enough and we're all the same while being all unique, it's a game changer. And it's the same thing with trolls. You know, no one sits at home and says, how can I make someone feel, my life is so great, who could I demoralize today? Trolls are really unhappy people. And if they could just feel enough, they might not be so eager to troll. But you have to start with those people who just don't feel enough, which is why you know, we've been asked to put I'm enough into the jail system in California, and we certainly will, because most people who feel bad about themselves need to feel good about themselves, but they have no idea how to even begin because what the media says is buy a designer T-shirt, get a nice car, have some a status symbol but how can you get that when you don't even earn enough and everything you want without exception is because of how it's going to make you feel when you can get the feeling without the stuff then you've won you've absolutely won when you go yeah i could have that but i feel enough without it what i think i love about this is that this is not a client coming to see you with a shopping list of problems. This is you saying, okay, let's look at what's underneath, right? Um, yeah. When I listened to um, your other interviews, I listened to this great one in which you did. It was a Mind Valley talk. And I heard you detail this phenomenal and incredibly moving story about how you helped this woman that was, you know, a suicidal woman, you know, that, oh, that, yeah. Yeah, that really wanted to, you know, kill herself. Her mother had committed suicide. And I wonder, could you just talk us through the story and how you helped her? Yeah, what was so sad was that, you know, as very eminent psychiatrists called me, they often do and said, look, we've got someone um, in a hospital and she's so determined to kill herself. It's not if, it's when, and we just can't get anywhere with this girl. Could you come in and maybe hypnosis can get through to her? I went to see her. And one of the first things she said was, I, I read her notes. I knew her mother had killed herself. And she said something, and she said, oh, that didn't hurt me, you know, because my mum didn't like me. And she gave me this little tight smile and said, I, it didn't hurt me when my mum killed herself. I was 11 because she never liked me anyway. I said, no, that really hurt you. That really, really, there's no child who could not be hurt by her mother killing herself at 11. And you found her, which is even worse because it's like she didn't even care enough to go and do that somewhere where I wouldn't find her. And so, um, and then she gave me her list of problems. You know, I'm in here because I'm suicidal. I'm a shopaholic. I, I'm a hoarder. I'm a compulsive eater. And I said, you know, all of these things are, are labels. They're symptoms. The real thing with you is that you just don't think you're enough. And how could you when your mother did that? And, and your cure, should you like to take it, is to tell yourself every day that you're enough. And she was a little bit resistant, of course, and then I explained, look, the hoarding, when you feel not enough, you need more stuff. The compulsive shopping stems from I'm not enough, so I need more. The compulsive eating 
terms of I'm not enough, so I need more. And the wanting to kill yourself is because you feel not enough. And like many people who are depressed, you have this belief there's no cure. And even if there was, it wouldn't work for me. And I probably don't even deserve it because I'm not enough. So I kind of dismantled with her, not for her, all her beliefs. And it's very important when you're working with clients at that level to not do it for them, but to do it with them. So we sat and we talked. And at the end of it, I asked her if she would put on her phone, I'm enough, and have it um, a phone alert to go off every day. And she agreed that she would. And I made her a recording and I just kept saying over and over again, you're enough, you're enough, you're enough, you're enough. And after about a week, I noticed she started to send me a text every day, I'm enough, I'm enough. And she transformed so much. It was the most beautiful thing. And I've kept in touch with her ever since because she's an extraordinary girl. But the weirdest thing is that much later, I did a television show with her because everybody was so fascinated. She did an interview for a local paper and then the TV picked it up. I didn't ask them to do that. And the psychiatrist called me and went, oh, I've just seen that TV show. He said, it's so depressing. I said, what, her mother killing herself? He said, no, I've been working with her for seven years and you fixed her in a session. I said, but, but I fixed her because the common denominator of all of our issues is not feeling enough. And as a psychiatrist, why don't you do this? He said, no, I, I can't do that. I said, of course you can. You, you could do what I do so well. But psychiatrists are not trained to do that. And I recently trained this amazing psychiatrist in L.A. who said, when I leave your course, if my hospital won't let me do this, I'm leaving and going to another hospital that do because this is amazing. And then he sent me a message saying that he was working with someone with multiple personality disorder. Nobody could fix her, but he fixed her because he went back to, oh, you were molested as a child and you created all these different characters to deal with it, but let's put you back into one person who is enough. We can't amputate all these different people. Susie got hurt. Jenny was the good girl. Claire was the one that was always put down. And Annie was the one that Dad liked. And Susie's the one he hated. Let's not get rid of them. Let's just put them all together in a person who's enough. And so I love the fact that people are beginning to follow the I'm Enough movement to see it's, it's behind everything, hoarding. I mean, I've worked with thousands of alcoholics. I've never met one ever who felt they're enough. People say, but why would somebody like Michael Hutchins, that beautiful, beautiful man, destroy himself? Well, he felt he wasn't enough. Why would um, Kate Spade, the designer, kill herself? Well, she didn't think she was enough. Why did Amy Winehouse, with all that talent, go into destructiveness? Because she didn't feel like she was enough. And they go, but they had everything. I'm like, no, they didn't, because they didn't have enoughness. And if you haven't got that... You haven't got anything. Nothing else matters until you really believe you're enough. And it's so easy to wire that in by repeating it every day, including the objections, until it sinks in. So is that the key to feeling like we are enough? Because, you know, I mean, our, our audience, like myself, I mean, we just listen to that and we're thinking, wow, you know, I want me some enoughness. <laughs> So, like, what would the process be for that? Is it repetition? Bombard your mind with it. You know, whatever you see all the time, you let in. So I would say, first of all, write it on a mirror in eyeliner or marker pen or lipstick, and not just one mirror in your bedroom, all over your house. Put it on your fridge in fridge magnets. Write it on a blackboard if you have one. Um stamp it onto your cushions and stamps, um, have a little bit of jewelry that says it. And secondly, put it safely into your phone password or so that every day you're typing out squiggles, dots, but you're also putting in I'm enough. When you have to type that every day to open up your phone or your computer, it really goes in. So you need to see it all over your house, type it out, Set off your phone alerts so twice a day they go, I am enough. One of my clients said, you know, my password is obviously squiggles dots, I'm enough. And my when I say it, my computer answers, yes, you are, because I've set it up to do that. And what a great thing. She said, you know, occasionally I argue with it, but it goes, yes, you are. And so 
join the movement. Write it everywhere you can. People say, I've written it in sand. I've planted it in flowers. I print it on my toast in the morning. Um, so find so many ways. Someone just said to me, you know, I st I've got it on stickers on my light switches, and every time I switch on the light, I touch it and I say, I'm enough. I mean, so many of the people following the movement come up with ideas that I hadn't come up with. One of my, somebody wrote to me, said, I printed it on my children's pillows, on the pillowcase, and the last thing they see and the first thing is, I'm enough. Every morning we have breakfast, we go, I'm enough. And we never say because, because there is no quantify. I'm enough because I'm enough. And so just find every way you can. I have it all over my house. I've got cushions, pillows fridges mirrors and not long ago um this plumber was in my house he said why have you got that on your mirror and i told him and he came back later to fix my plumbing and he said i've done that in my house it's changed my son and my wife they're so different and then one of my graduates one of the girls i trained said that when she was moving her moving he said why have you got all that on your mirror she told them they all booked a session with her so i love that that people are really beginning to recognize if the common denominator of all my issues is I'm not enough, then surely if I change it, I'm enough, I'm fixing all my issues. I mean, obviously, we're in a difficult time with a virus and people losing their job, and that's a terrible thing. But if you know you're enough, you're more likely to get another one or to be kept by your company. So wherever you are in the world, join that movement because its strength is its simplicity, but also its absolute honesty because you are enough. You're not your weight, your shape, your size. You're not your childhood. You're not your job description, but you are enough. And if you believe it, you give the whole world the ability to believe it about you too. And that's when it becomes so magical because when you know it, the world joins you in recognizing your enoughness, but you have got to recognize it first. If you don't believe it, how can anyone else? Why do I get emotional when I just say the words, I am enough? I think a lot of people do. A lot of people cry. The school that was working with it with bullying said they took all the boys that were bullying, there were nine of them, and they took them in a room and made them sit, and they wanted them said, I don't even know why I'm crying. But it's, it's letting go of the lie you've told yourself for so long, I'm not enough, and letting in the beauty of the truth that makes you feel tearful. Wow, if I'm enough, what a beautiful thing that is. I'm getting tearful at the very concept that I could possibly be enough. And a lot of people tear up, a lot of people cry. I know I have an I'm enough meditation on YouTube. Now, it's completely free, by the way. Just go to YouTube and put in I'm enough. Because I, I wept when I said that to myself. When I heard your voice making me repeat it, I was full of tears, but they were happy tears. I was letting go. And letting go is such a powerful place to get to, letting go of lying to yourself every day about you're not enough, letting go of, you know, living a life that isn't big enough letting go of holding yourself back just in case you might get rejected. So it is emotional, but it's happy tears because you're finally able to be free to reach your potential. You are, you know, an expert in fertility. You even wrote a book on it called Trying to Get Pregnant, Bracket and Succeed In, which I love. So, so I want to flag up just a blog post on your website from marissapia.com. There was a blog post on there and it was called How Therapy Can Be More Effective for Infertility Than IVF. So I wonder, how can RTT, Rapid Transformational Therapy, be used for fertility? Your questions are so great, by the way. Well, first of all, <laughs> I was told I could never have a child. You know, I, I stopped having periods when I was 17 and they never came back. And I remember my doctor saying, look, you just have to accept that you you can't get pregnant. And I had some weird um, thyroid thing, which actually I don't have anymore now. And they said, even if you get pregnant, well, first of all, you can't get pregnant with that. And if you could, you'd never carry a baby to full term. And I knew even then that I must not let that in. So I didn't, and I went on to have a perfect baby. And while I was carrying her, they'd always say, you know, this baby's going to have something wrong with her. The baby's underweight, going to be born very underweight 
probably have to be incubated. She was born at seven and a half pounds. She was absolutely perfect. So I knew then that there was something not quite right here. And so I began to work with people who are infertile, and they go, I've got unexplained infertility, which is a fascinating label. It means I can't explain your infertility. Your ovaries are fine, your womb's fine, your husband's sperm is like the SAS. There's so much of it, and it swims straight, and I don't know why you can't conceive. So I would ask their mind in hypnosis. I'd say, let's go back to why, and they always went back to one of, there are about seven different things what I call blocks, baby blocks. And the most common one is I'm 16, I think I'm pregnant. I'm 14, I think I'm pregnant. Oh, my God, my dad's going to kill me. This is a nightmare. I'm dating this Arab boy, and I'm an Indian, or I'm a white kid, or he's just like, they would be horrified. And now I think I'm pregnant. It's the end of the world. It's a nightmare. It's hell. It's a disaster. And sometimes they were pregnant. They'd go off and have a termination, and they go, oh, that was just, Oh, it was hell. Or they'd find out they weren't and go, oh, my God, yay, joy, bliss, I'm not pregnant. But you see, the the subconscious mind is always switched on, and it records everything. It never runs out of batteries. And so now your mind is very clear. Having a baby is hell. It's nightmare. It's torture. And not having a baby is utter joy. So with them, the ones who either got pregnant, had a termination, thought they were pregnant, Maybe they'd go back to another scene of, you know, I've just got this promotion. I've got pregnant. This is like completely the wrong time. The mind is very clear. You don't want a baby. The second group had secondary infertility, which means they got pregnant, had a baby, easy, and they just couldn't get pregnant again. And they would always go back to, oh, it's so funny because I remember when I gave birth to my husband, never again. It would kill me to go through this or I'm at home with a little three-month-old, and I said, imagine if we had another one now. My husband goes, I'd, I'd run away. I'd leave you. I, I'd jump under a train. We say all these stupid things that we don't mean, but the mind doesn't understand that. You see, you respond to the pictures you make in your head and the words you say. When you say, it's hell having a baby, I'd die if I had another one. It nearly killed me, those sleepless nights. Now your mind is crystal clear. You don't want a baby. And so the girl who said, actually, she said, I'm an Arab and I'm dating this bad boy from my village and my parents. If they find out, oh, my God. And I said, but now, she goes, well, now I'm married to a lovely man from the same culture as me. My parents love him, adore him, and they've paid for us to have three rounds of IVF and it hasn't worked. So now the same parents that would have been devastated, maybe cast her out, are paying for her to have a baby. So it's about getting the mind to recognize that was then, that isn't you, that 14-year-old girl who thought she was wearing is not you, and getting them to really link pleasure, not pain, to having a baby, changing the words, I'm expecting a baby, I'm a mother-to-be, because people then do this thing about, well, I'm not going to tell anyone in case it doesn't go to full term. I'm not going to buy anything. And I said, you know, you go out and buy something now as your mark of faith that that baby is coming. And then I began to work with IVF clinics who, you know, when women come in, they say to them straight away, you have a 25% chance of this working. And they don't hear that. They hear I have a 75% chance of this failing. A lot of them say it normally works on the third round, but then already people think, well, okay. So when I see clients for IVF, I tell them it works immediately and I excite the imagination. Your husband has, you know, thousands of sperm. He's got the crack military sperm and you've got grade A eggs and that egg is swimming down your fallopian tubes, attracting to it. Grade A sperm, grade A sperm meat, grade A egg, and immediately conception takes place. And now the egg goes on a five-day cruise into your womb, and it sticks in there like Velcro. Because many people say, no, I had IVF, and it failed. I'm like, tell me about the failure. Well, I produced seven eggs. Well, that's 100% success. Yeah, you're right. I had success at egg collection. And then the eggs fertilized. Yes, I had 100% success at fertilization. Yeah, 100% success. But the embryo transfer, that it didn't stick. So I began to talk about this embryo sticking like Velcro and growing and how 
their job was to talk to that baby every day and tell it to stay and and then we describe all the things in their house the the baby grows in the washing machine the pram in the hall the playpen in the garden the the teddies all over the sofa the little um cot in the baby room and all the stuff in the bathroom and I was really getting their mind to see this baby because if you can see it enough you can activate conception and and I was basing that a lot on the fact that people who have IVF and it works tend to get pregnant immediately naturally I should say within a year or two people who adopt because they're infertile frequently conceive because once the mind gets to see you as a mother it starts to boost your fertility so the best thing you can do is buy things for that baby and you, you may know a phantom pregnancy is when you want a baby so much that your body creates all the symptoms of pregnancy including breastful of milk so I just took it further and would really compel the body to make that baby because after all that's its job you your body wants to make a baby it certainly wants to carry it so it was, it was looking at you know unexplainably secondary and looking at the IVF and that it was often the implantation that didn't work and just focusing on that. Do people subconsciously have fears around this, you know, because I mean, I can tell you, you know, that I don't like hospitals. I don't like going to hospitals. Could, could things like that, could these like unconscious fears be a thing? The fear of birth is so profound. You know, the fear, a lot of women have a fear it's going to ruin my body. I've worked really hard to get this body, and I don't want to ruin my body. That's the fear. The fear of giving birth is really deep. You know, I don't like going to have injections and all these things. The fear of taking a baby home and having no idea what to do with it. The fear that we'll be a terrible mother. And, of course, in the West, we're told such a lie. Happiness is linked to being in control. Control your weight, make your house tidy, be really good at work. And so when you have a baby, there's no control. They choose when to wake up and sleep, and they create a lot of um, mess and chaos in their wake. So it's this belief, oh, when I have this baby, I don't have any control. There's some people, interesting enough, who I worked with somebody who's had a mother and a father who were a bit weird with her, but then they had twins, and they loved these twins, but they didn't seem to love her. And then she found a husband, and he loved her. And she had this unconscious belief, if there's three you won't love me. My mum and dad had each other. The twins had each other. I've never had anyone just for me. And now I've got you having a baby and I'm going to be the odd one out all over again. And some people who don't get on with their parents have a fear. What if I'm like my mother? What if the baby, I treat her like my mother treat me? So it's, it's interesting fears. What if my husband leaves? My dad left when my mum had me. He didn't love her anymore. He was very superficial. What if that happens to me? So the, the fears are very common. And in my book, I call them baby blocks. And I describe the seven different ones and then dismantle them because it's not true. There are many people who've had children who've got great figures. They've had three or four and got amazing figures. There are people who've got babies who are living a great life and having a successful business and partners love them more than ever. So, it, but you see these fears, they're not logical, but emotion is more powerful than logic. If you have an emotional fear, I die giving birth, I, I lose control of my body, my partner might leave, that fear isn't based on emotion that will always defeat the logic that says, no, that's not going to happen. The fear of miscarriage, what if I had got pregnant and it didn't work out. What if there's something wrong with a baby? All of these emotional fears in a battle between emotion and logic, emotion wins. So you've got to have a better emotion. I'm making a perfect, healthy, gorgeous baby, carrying it to full term. And even when people come and say, I want to be pregnant, I'm like, no, you've been pregnant six times. You want to have a full term, perfect, healthy baby. Let's go there. Because even this thing, I'm trying to fall pregnant. I'm trying to be pregnant. That's not true. That's another lie you're wanting to have to make, carry, conceive, deliver, and raise a perfect, healthy child. So tell your mind the truth, and it's more likely to deliver it. 
I think that a major takeaway from this conversation has been just how important the language repetition and really becoming the master of our own minds is. And when I was really digging into your story, Marissa, one of the things in which I found amazing was your personal approach and the philosophies which you use to almost defeat cancer, right? I mean, you've overcome cancer twice. I'm not sure yeah. if you'd use that language, but um, I just wonder, you know, could you just talk through the underlying philosophies that you use to approach, you know, something which must have been, you know, incredibly, you know, challenging? Yeah, I mean, of course, the, when I got the news, it was horrible. It was scary. I couldn't actually believe that I'd had get it because I, I was so healthy and lived such a healthy life. And it was a shock. But a long time ago, I started using very positive language. And, and what happens when you do this is it stops being what you do and it starts to become who you are. So when I got that diagnosis, I had two days of being in shock. And then all of a sudden my mind clicked in and went, well, it's really lucky. I mean, what a stroke of luck to have cancer in your womb because you don't need your womb. And I thought, that's true. I don't need a womb. It did a great job. And I could have it in my spine or my eye, but I got it in my womb. And I, st I went from being upset to feeling very fortunate. And I had that removed and it was really easy. I was on stage a week later with Richard Bandler, like it never happened because I began to see it as a blip. And my mind was really um, doing what I trained it to do without me doing anything. I found myself singing this song. There's a song that goes, I feel pretty and witty and gay. And I was singing the cancer is healing and fading and going away and it's going away every day. And I felt really great. So when, when, it, when I got another one two years later, that was a little like, oh, okay, I, didn't, I wasn't expecting that. But I knew what to do and I just went straight back to – commanding my mind to get rid of it. And when people would come up and go, you know, I'm, I'm a cancer survivor like you, I'd go, no, I'm not a cancer survivor because I haven't got it. I had it. I didn't have it. I had it again. I didn't have it. And I don't even want to use those words. I don't refer to it very much. Sometimes I do. It helped me put together a program to help other people that had it. But it's something that came and it went. And, and even when it was there, I realized that you can't give that. Say to your daughter, hey, could you make me better? That was down to me. I had to make choices. And I already had a healthy diet and a healthy belief system. But I had to do other stuff too, a lot of visualizing. One of the people we trained, she was like two days away from death. She had stage four colon cancer. And she now is one of our best therapists for for working with cancer and we have quite a few and they they do amazing things about activating your power to heal yourself and in fact I read recently that most people get cancer six times in their lifetime but the body knows how to fix it because your immune system is always killing cells the problem is that cancer cells don't die so they give you chemo to kill them and so I just decided to command my body to kill them all off and actually it must have done it because when when I had the surgery and they took away the organ different one twice they went well there's no cancer cells in it I mean we know it was there but they'd gone and I knew that was because I was commanding my blood cells my b cells and natural killer cells to kill them and in fact, recently, I've just made a program for children. I must send it to you. You can have it. And it's all about using your mind to fight the virus, this battle that goes on, because you have in your body and your bloodstream general cells that search for viruses, B cells that kill them, and then monocytes that come along and clean it up. So I just wrote this song and this book and this app for children to fight this. Much people could saying, you know, this virus, it's so scary. There's no antibody. Yes, there is. It's in you. There's no um, vaccine. No, there isn't. But if you believe that your body will fight a virus, it will fight it. Might not work for everyone, but for children, their imagination is so active and so if they can sing this song, read this story, and, and play this five-minute game in their head where they're releasing the troops that are eating the virus, makes them feel really excited. What would be one thing that, you know, with all the years of experience that you've got, everything in which you've seen, all these phenomenal life experiences, what would be one thing that I guess you wish that every person knew about the mind? 
I wish they knew that you 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 don't work for your mind; it works for you. You you see, when you say horrible things to yourself, like "I'm a loser," "I'm an idiot," "I'm stupid," "I'm a waste of space," your mind has no choice but to act on the words that you say. But you do have a choice. You have a choice. I'm not going to say that. I'm going to say I'm a lovely person. I made a mistake, but that's what humans do. So you can choose what you say, but your mind cannot choose but to react to what you say. So you might as well say better things. That That's your job. Your mind's job is to act on your words and your job, and it is a great job, is to give your mind better words to act on. I love it. I love it. Marissa, what books have impacted your life? Oh, um, I'm re- I've got some great books. Hold on. Um Into the Abyss. I love that book. These are all books written by doctors. So it's all in your head by Suzanne Sullivan. I love that. Mm. Into the Abyss by Anthony Davis. These are books mostly by psychiatrists, Feelings, Buried Alive, Never Die. The Body Keeps Score, Unlock Your Mind and Be Free, and and autobiographies too. I love reading autobiographies. I read Steve McQueen's autobiography. It blew my mind how his mother dressed him as a girl for five years, Mm -hmm. and then you could see why he was so macho his whole life. Um, I read Elizabeth Taylor's autobiography. I find them fascinating. Jane Fonda, I used to work for her. I'm really interested in human behavior and and what went wrong. Marilyn Monroe, I always found her fascinating because she had everything, but she actually had nothing because she had no sense of her value. Where can our audience connect with you and do you have any closing messages? Well, if you go to marissapeer.com, we have a lot of free audios. They're absolutely free love blocks, money blocks, health blocks, success blocks. So go there and take whatever you want. We also have an audio to boost your immunity and the the game for children. If you want to train in RTT and and do what I do, there's no background in therapy is required. Go to rtt.com and you can either learn to do what we do or find we have a girl called Sean Collins in Cardiff, one of the first people I trained, and we've got great RTT therapists all over the country. We have about six in Cardiff, I believe. But go to rtt.com and you can find someone that does exactly what I do, gets the results I get. And if you want to find more about the book, I'm Enough, you can buy that on Amazon. And go to imenough.com because we have a program. So I've got three sites, imenough.com, marissapeer.com, rtt.com. And then on YouTube and Instagram, I have tons of free um webinars and talks and they're all marissa peer therapy so they're easy to find everything will be linked below including the blog posts uh the uh youtube guided meditation your website the link to the box marissa this was such a pleasure this was such a treat for me personally thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show well it's been a pleasure thank you for having such great questions i really appreciated them they were powerful that wraps up episode 196 don't forget all of our interviews are now up on our youtube channel just head on over to youtube.com forward slash freedom pact to watch the video versions of each conversation when you're over there please hit the subscribe button it would make me really happy if you wanted to support the show in other ways please consider leaving us a five star itunes review or consider subscribing to our Healthy, Wealthy and Wise newsletter. Thank you so much for tuning in. As always, guys, it's such a pleasure. And as always, we will be back again on Monday.